0: Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter 32, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. We get to finish off this morning as a church. We've been making our way through the book of Exodus for quite some time now. We are in Exodus 32, Lord willing, we will be finishing up this book next year. But we are finally finishing up this chapter. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 25. Hear God's word. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, needless to say, our passage this morning is not a Christmas passage. Uh, This morning is not a Christmas sermon. Uh, If you're here for a Christmas sermon, you're a week early. Come back next week. We'll have a Christmas sermon ready for you. No, our passage this morning is about Moses. It is about Moses and the consequences of sin. But that doesn't mean it has nothing to do with Jesus. If you take time to think about it, Moses is much like Christ. Theologians have a word for this. It's called typology. Typology. Typology involves identifying patterns through Scripture, through the course of Scripture, across different parts of the Bible. And Moses is a type of Of Christ or to put it another way have you ever realized how much Christ when Jesus comes born in a manger 1500 years after Moses how he is in the image and likeness of Moses a Jesus born in a manger rushed to safety right afterwards by his parents to avoid the wrath of a jealous king, a king who was intent on killing infant babies, infant baby boys. Well, Moses was also rushed to safety by his mother, hid in a basket because what? Pharaoh issued a decree that all boys would be thrown into the Nile. In Matthew 2, there's a prophetic word from Hosea applied to Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, Moses led Israel out of Egypt. Both Jesus and Moses left behind a royal existence. I mean, they were in the throne room, both of them, with all the privileges that life could offer. To identify, however, they threw that all away to identify with a people in bondage who would reject him as their deliverer. Following on the heels of Jesus' exodus out of Egypt, he was baptized in the Jordan River, just as Moses, as he led Israel out of Egypt, had to pass through the Red Sea. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, and then up afterwards, up on top of a mountain, on the Sermon on the Mount, he embraced his role as divine lawgiver, Moses led the people through the wilderness and spent 40 days and nights upon Mount Sinai to come and bring down the law for the people. Do you see how Moses in all these respects is like Christ? Moses is a type of Christ and Christ is presented as a new Moses. We're meant to see the remarkable similarities between the two. And this morning, our passage presents another way in which Moses is similar to Jesus in his role as mediator for the people. Now, if you haven't already, you're going to want to have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 32, verses 25 to 35. We're going to look there. And Exodus 32 is that our passage this morning is at the very end. And this whole chapter has has been concerning itself with the incident of the golden calf. Moses is atop Mount Sinai, uh, receiving the law from God, but Israel grew impatient with Moses, and Israel grew impatient with God. They create for themselves a golden calf, and they worship it. They sin, they disobey God's word, they distort the truth of God. And when Moses returns and finds Israel in utter chaos, and disarray, he goes about the task of dealing with Israel's sin. Well, what does he do? He begs God not to destroy Israel. He intercedes. Then he smashes the Ten Commandments to show the Israelites how they have broken covenant with God. They have broken the law of God. Next, he reduces the golden calf to a pile of dust. He puts it into the water supply for them to drink it. He confronted Aaron, Aaron who was to lead his people. Aaron for his role in the rebellion. But the prophet isn't finished. Moses is not done because the Israelites have yet to face the consequences of their sin. And this is what these verses are about, the consequences of sin. And Moses as mediator, desperately grasping for some way to avoid it two consequences of sin we see from our passage. First, sin will be judged. Second, sin needs a mediator. The consequences of sin. First, sin will be judged. Sin will be judged. We read in verse 25 that the people had broken loose, it's a unique phrase there in the Hebrew, it's used in the Bible for people who have lost any semblance of control. They're running wild with their sensuality. And it says that they did so to the derision of their enemies. Now, we don't often use derision, what does it mean? It means mockery, it means scorn, it means ridicule, The NIV says that they had become a laughing stock. In other words, their enemies said to themselves, you hear about these Israelites? Some holy people they turned out to be. Oh, they were supposed to be this royal priesthood? Never underestimate the power of a changed life to make a skeptic skeptic sit up and take notice and never underestimate the power of hypocrisy to embolden the enemies of God. They looked upon this people whom God had redeemed and set free from bondage and all they see is that they are people who said, we're free. They let all boundaries go. A wild, loose people. And they think, what sort of people do we have here? They're they're laughable. Not formidable. They've been rescued, what, only a couple months? And look at them now. We underestimate how our lives have the power to make people say, I'm not sure if there's really a God out there. But I can't deny something has happened to that person's life. This whole Christianity thing, I don't like it. But I can't deny that since they've come home from college, I can't deny that since they've become a believer in Jesus, that something has changed in their life. And don't underestimate the damage we can do if someone says, well, look at him. They're all about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but I know how they live. (laughs) You know what, I know him. He goes to church on Christmas. But I've seen him the rest of the days of the week. I know what he's really like. If that's their God, then no thanks. So this was a national failure by Israel on the grandest scale, not only because they broke covenant with God, not only because they discard the glory of God and the promises of God and the joy of God, but because they have besmirched the name of God. They are lying with their lives about what God is like. They are making a mockery of God's name. And this is deadly, serious sin deserving of the severest punishment. So in verse 26, Moses stands at the gate of the camp. You can picture it in your mind. And he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Now at this point, it's not clear if anyone is for the Lord if anyone is on the Lord's side. But God was willing to show mercy. There was still a way back for the people. Moses doesn't say, come to me, all of you who have never deviated from the Lord and all of you who have never worshiped the golden calf. That's not what he says. He says, come to me. Who is on the Lord's side? No, he calls for those who, no matter what they've done, were now prepared to acknowledge Yahweh as their Lord. It's an act of amnesty, of grace. Moses smashed the tablets. He burned up the golden calf. He turns his attention to perhaps two million Israelites and says to me, come. Who is on the Lord's side? And the only men who answer the call are these Levites. Levites members of Moses' own tribe. They take a stand with God. And incidentally, this is a decision that everyone must make. Are you with God or not? Are you on the Lord's side or not? There comes a time when every person has to make that decision. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. If we do not decide for Christ, then we are siding with him. And so the question is, are you with Jesus? Do you believe he is the son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross as full atonement for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again on the third day to give you new life? This is the decision everyone must make when they first come to Christ. And this is the decision every Christian must make every day of their Christian lives. Am I on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? A decision to be faithful to our Lord. Well, the Levites rally to Moses and he does not call on them to preach. He calls on them to strap on a sword to go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp and kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said in the Gospels, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of, the, of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard saying. Because it's easy to say, I love Jesus more than a golden calf. I love Jesus more than my car and my house. But what if he calls you as he does to love, serve, and follow him even if it means estrangement from your family. I was reading a story about a particular theologian who changed his mind about a controversial view uh, or issue in our day. And somebody had asked, do his sons' choices, does the theologian's sons' choices, have anything to do with him changing his mind on the topic? And somebody insightfully responded, I'm afraid that blood is thicker than theology. And that's true for many of us. You know what the Bible says, but when it comes to accosting something with your children or with your spouse, sometimes blood is thicker than theology but not so with these Levites. The language in verse 27, the language in verse 27 is that they carefully and systematically went throughout the camp. And we don't know why only 3,000 were killed. Perhaps there were some who were, as the Levites were going through the camp, just simply held their ground. So we're not going to the Lord. Certainly, there was some publicly recognizable thing that these individuals were not willing to stop putting God's name to derision. But we see that judgment came, and 3,000 of about 2 million people were killed. Israel had escaped the sword of Pharaoh, but they couldn't escape the sword of their own kin it may seem to us to be a grossly exaggerated punishment for their crime. We might think to ourselves, it's just a little idolatry. But that's not how the Lord sees it. Passages like this re- reorients us to the horror of sin because you either assert your human autonomy and say, I don't like God who views sin in such stark terms and punishes like this, or he can say, I must listen to the scriptures, and say, which says that sin is so heinous that it deserves a punishment like this. Because we tend to think that our sins are very light, that our transgressions, our idolatries, our mini idolatries are just small transgressions, small infractions, and all such threatening, is just an exaggeration, but it shows how little we understand the sinfulness of sin and the grandeur and dignity and worth of God. Now, there are some people who try to explain away passages like this, and they say, the Old Testament God, well, he's the kind of God with a short fuse and great wrath. He's like a cranky old man. When he has a bad day, he kind of just throws out the lightning bolts. The New Testament God, on the other hand, is a God of love and great patience, reconciling the world to himself. Remember baby Jesus. It was a silent night because he didn't cry. He was meek and mild, gentle Jesus. So we simply say that this is kind of an Old Testament thing, and we don't really have to worry about it because now we are New Testament saints. Yet the more closely you read the New Testament... It doesn't quite work out, does it? Because in the New Testament, who is the figure that introduces us to the greatest number of descriptions of a terrible hell? It's Jesus. Of course, the New Testament has all sorts of passages that speak of the wrath of God, the wine press of God's wrath. But do you know why we sometimes think that the God of the New Testament is softer than the Old Testament? I'll tell you why, because most of us have a greater fear of war and famine and plague than hell. So we read the Old Testament, and we're shocked, and we read the New Testament and all it has to say about hell, and we say, eh, not a big deal. I'm okay with that. But with these verses in Exodus, what they provocatively portray is that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. God will judge all sin. The justice that Austin Thompson will receive for him gunning down five people is not just the justice that he will get from the courts in North Carolina. You know, maybe somebody like Sam Bankman Fried. The justice that he's gonna get is not just what the courts meted out in Manhattan. Justice, for that matter, that you and I are due are not only the justice that comes in this life, because God is a perfectly good God, and he says all sin will be punished and sin will be judged. Which brings me to our second point this morning. Sin needs a mediator. Sin needs a mediator. The next day, Moses tells the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now... I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, one would think that by this time, the Levites had finished their work, that God was finished dealing with Israel's sin. I mean, the golden calf was destroyed. Aaron was confronted. Rebellion is put to death. But there's still a problem. They still need to atone for the guilt of their sin. They needed some way to repair their relationship with God. So I don't know what happened that night when Mo- between what happened in the evening when Moses woke up the next day and says I'm going to go up on the mountain. But perhaps he was distraught, maybe he couldn't sleep. Probably he couldn't sleep. And perhaps Moses had done some thinking that night. And he's still thinking to himself, how can God's wrath be averted? Maybe he remembered the sacrifices of the Hebrew patriarchs. Maybe he remembered uh, the, the, uh, the sacrifices in the Passover. Maybe he remembered that I would just was given instructions about an altar to be built for sacrifices. So maybe he put all that together. And he thought, certainly God will accept a substitute So Moses intercedes again, he climbs that mountain, he heads up the mountain, and he makes a desperate, desperate prayer before God. He says, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. I don't think Moses is saying, if you're gonna take them out, take me out also. That's not what he's saying. That wouldn't solve the problem of the Lord's honor, that would not advance the case of the people that Moses is interceding for. Rather, Moses is saying, if you're unwilling to forgive them, might I offer myself? Let me be a substitute. Might I be blotted out of the book for my countrymen? What book is this? It's a common phrase in the ancient world. Kings would keep a written record, a kind of census for the people. Taxation, for military duty, for property. And whenever somebody... Uh, died or passed away, they would simply blot them out. And there are at least two different types of books like this in the Old and New Testaments. There's a book of living referred to in Psalm 69, which refers to an earthly physical life, and being blotted out of that is to meet an early end to your life on earth. More often, however, is the book of life mentioned in Revelation 20, which is the set of names of those who will be in heaven. This is the role of those who will be in heaven, role of those who are saved, names of the believers who are recorded. And it's unclear which book Moses is referring to. But either way, the point is really the same. Whether he was thinking in terms of earthly life or eternal life, Moses was willing to die for his people. It is like Paul's desire in Romans 9, when he said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So here was a desperate prayer from Moses. And Moses is saying, if you're going to destroy somebody, destroy me. But save these people. Moses was willing to be damned if only Israel would be saved. I'm What a prayer. I don't know if you've come to pray like that. I don't know if you've ever prayed like that. I don't know if I've prayed like that. Except maybe for my own children. To pray, damn me, that they may be saved. But here was the heart of a good shepherd, who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And God says, no, each person will pay for their own sin. They will be blotted out of my book. God says, I want you to go and bring them to the promised land. My angel will go before you. I'm not wiping them out, but I will yet visit their sin upon them. It's arguable whether this visitation happens in verse 35 with that plague that comes, or whether, as I tend to think, that the language of verse 34 is more dramatic. I think what he's referring to are all the covenant curses that will be stipulated as part of the Mosaic Law later in the Pentateuch. Those curses would eventually fall upon Israel when they reject God again and again and are sent into exile in Babylon. But for now, in verse 35, he sends a plague, some sort of disease or some sort of illness. We don't know if anybody died. We just know a plague came along. Plagues are not just for the Egyptians. They're also for the Israelites. Moses had been so effective before, but now his plea does not work. Up to this point, we would be forgiven for thinking that Moses could possibly do anything. He marched up to the most powerful ruler on earth at that time, and he said, let my people go. Then he marched the people through the Red Sea, and then he interceded on behalf of the, uh, on behalf of the people, and water came out of the rock. He prayed for them when the Amalekites attacked, and they won. Every time it seems, God is listening. He smashed tablets. He, he grinds up the calf. He rebukes Aaron. What can't he do? Now he goes before the Lord as the chosen mediator and says, I will lay down my life for them because what is he? Because we know that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. But this is something he couldn't do. God says, you can do a lot of things, Moses, but you can't do this thing. for reading our bible's carefully the ending of chapter 32 would be very unsatisfying because we're left wondering when will enough be enough when will the plagues end when will reconciliation happen between people and god and we're given a picture of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of god and we're left saying if moses can't do it who can do it because there must be a greater shepherd a greater substitute, a greater atonement, a greater mediator. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin. Amen? He lived 30 years to die upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and he rose again on the third day. This is a mediator unlike any other. Oh, church, there is only one mediator. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. It was there upon the cross that Jesus accomplished what Moses, you and I, or any other kind person that we know can never do. This is important for us to understand from our passage that salvation does not come from a removal of justice. Salvation comes from the satisfaction of justice. You might think that because of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, that somehow love conquered holiness, that we're saved because God just loves us so much that he says, you know, plagues and punishment and all those types of things, just forget about it, no big deal, because I love you so much. No, that's not what happens. That's not how salvation works. We're not justified because God's mercy eliminates justice. We're justified because in divine mercy, God sent his son to the cross to satisfy divine justice. You need atonement for your sins. I need atonement for my sins. But Christ is enough. He is the one For every sin, past, present, and future, Christ paid it all. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God because justice is shot through the plan of redemption. It is everywhere in the plan of redemption because people go to hell because of God's justice. And people go to heaven because of God's justice God does not overlook our sins he demands justice for all our iniquities every last lustful look every little proud thought every spiteful word from our tongues every idol we hide in our hearts the wages of sin is death but what but what the gift of God the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord for the sake of rebellious idolaters. The blessed one was blotted out and brought back to life. So I call upon you to come to him this morning, to be on the Lord's side, to draw near to him, to believe in him, run to him, worship him, that you might enter and live in the promised land that he has designed for us that goes on for forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, oh God, we give thanks to you for the mercy that you have demonstrated to us in Christ. We give praise to you because Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. It is not by our might or not by our strength. And so we give praise to you that in your plan of redemption, you sent your son to be born of a virgin, that he might identify with us and live a perfect life and die on our behalf. To lay down his life so that anyone who would trust in him repent of their sins. would know the atonement of Christ and the satisfaction of joy in relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that this would be a message on our lips as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.